Hello everyone, welcome to the New Humanist Podcast. I'm Damien, and this is episode 48, the 6th of part 7. Topic for today is a problem with Richard Dawkins with respect to God. Right, this critique, how do I say this? I had to approach this carefully because Richard Dawkins, after all, is one of the most renowned critics of religion. At the same time, he is one of the most notable proponents of Darwinism, right? The Neo-Darwinian framework, which is the one which espouses a naturalistic understanding of life, vis-a-vis the natural selection view of evolution. So Richard Dawkins, I mean, of course, he's very well known. He's well-renowned, respected. He travels the world. He's recognizable. His views are often cited by atheists and secularists and non-believers. He has a pedigree, let's say, he's from England, I think. I think he's Oxford educated. And of course, he was a friend of Mr. Hitchens. And after, you know, Hitchens passed and this guy sort of took over, or maybe he always was uh, at the top of the league. But speaking of the new atheist people, right, Richard Dawkins is the most noticeable character, let's say, right? Now, with Richard Dawkins, it has to be said, a lot can be said. In fact, for this particular, well, two episodes, I've basically broken it down into two critiques, right? The first one today focuses on Richard Dawkins's critique of God and... Uh, mainly his critique of religion, essentially, right? So his critique of religion vis-a-vis God, which, which is also, as it happens, underpinned by support of evolution, which is unfortunately inescapable. Virtually everything that Dawkins says, and I will point out a few examples today, seems to converge on the topic of evolution. And again, specific is a very particular Darwinian view of evolution. Okay, now if you go back to the previous episode, I think my audio is a bit loud. This is just a technical point. From the last time I used a different recording, mic, maybe it was too loud, but anyway. The previous episode, my critique of Daniel Dennett, which is basically a preliminary one, is just a starting point. With, with Dawkins, of course, I've engaged this guy before, so get a bit deep in today. But basically, with Mr. Daniel Dennett, who I critiqued last time, it was just a starting point. It was sort of a launching pad for what is to come. But Richard Dawkins is going to be different. The problem with Dawkins like, staying on the topic of God is that his views are underpinned by evolution. He essentially subscribes to the idea of evolution, the one which Darwin formulated, and he holds on to it religiously, okay, as we shall see. The second part of this critique, which is the next episode, is Richard Dawkins on evolution, right? And unlike, let's say, the last time, and I think I'll just preview this now, so to let listener know what to expect, it's less of a question of the problem with evolution in terms of its mechanism, in terms of its, the creative sufficiency of the natural selection process. Some of those points which I engaged last time when I critiqued Daniel Dennett, this blind adherence to the contributions of uh, Charles Darwin, which, by the way, as I mentioned, are being challenged in the scientific world. You just don't hear much about it because a lot of the scientists, especially in the Anglo-American world, and I think in Europe as well, is, are just too atheistic, right? They're just too comfortable being atheists or secular. Or there's another deeper problem is that people are afraid to speak out, okay? People are afraid to express views which are, well, contrarian, right? Which goes against the herd. I'm not suggesting that there's a herd mentality, but... An argument can be made that that is the case. And in fact, the more I listen to Richard Dawkins, his spousal of Charles Darwin and his evolution, and I'll cite a few examples today, and that will give the listener a good indication as to what's going on. The Darwinian evolution itself is becoming, as I would argue, at least in a certain sense, a religious force. It's almost becoming like a dogmatic position that people are coming to embrace. That is something we'll get into later on. So this episode, I will focus on Richard Dawkins and his critique of God. Now, I have sort of purposely left out some of his major works, notably The God Delusion, The Selfish Gene, and what's the other one? The Blind Watchmaker. Because these are the most popular works that people know the arguments, at least, you know, you would. And the critique of them have generally been looked at. They've been countered by certain theologians. 
William Lane Craig is one person that comes to mind. But my approach here is to sort of take a step back. It's a step back approach, okay, to this important person, this preeminent figure in the world of secularism. He, in many respects, has become a public intellectual in the Anglo-American world. He and a lot of the new atheist people, right? Sam Harris, Lawrence Krauss, just, you know, they make their trips across the Atlantic to America and they go around talking about atheism. It's become kind of insular as far as I can see. They're just talking to themselves, to be honest. I mean, it's no different from what's happening within Christian evangelical circles, if I may say so. So the problem is essentially, it's practically the same. There's just no, there isn't much conversation, right? Flowing from different ends. The people are just sort of insulating themselves into their own groups and so on. But the thing about Richard Dawkins is that he's respected, okay? So I have to engage this in a careful way. But at the same time, of course, I need to really get going with this critique because after all, I mean, Richard Dawkins, as far as I'm concerned, he has not been attacked critically by anyone, right? People are still giving him too much credit. They're taking him too seriously, right? And the only meaningful critique of Richard Dawkins is going to come from the guys who are critical of evolution, unsurprisingly. Again, the problem with evolution, guys, is it's not that there's a problem with the idea of life changing. It's not a question about people being uncomfortable with the transitory character of life. That is not the issue here. It is this dogmatic assertion that life is non-teleological, that life somehow, in its mechanistic character, is self-contained, okay? That it needs no uh, transcendental input. It has no endpoint, and it just somehow comes into being. The point here, listeners, is that Richard Dawkins is getting away with it, and especially his critique of God, which actually is not really a critique of God, but is a critique of religion. And unfortunately, and I've just listened to an interview today, basically, with some woman named Jana Levin, right? presumably atheist, and uh, he's promoting his new book, which is Outgrowing God. Is that it? Yeah, Outgrowing God. He published another one titled uh, The Magic of Reality, and I'll cite a few passages from that today as well. But anyway, my focus here is this. Richard Dawkins, he, I can't understand what's really going on. Maybe because he's 80 plus, he's 80, right? And, you know, he has a reputation. People are not really going after this guy, okay? With the exception of the politically correct crowd on issues like diversity and inclusivity. And by the way, those guys are giving it to him, as it happens, because, you know, his, uh, his commitment to science and reason apparently doesn't sit well with the uh, certain, uh, what is the word, woke? Is that the word, woke elements? I haven't really engaged topics on popular culture, on issues like feminism and race and diversity and inclusivity. I've stayed away from them. Maybe I'll get into that, but that's not really my concern at the moment. But anyway, Richard Dawkins is uh, getting a hard time by the people on the left, culturally speaking, right? People who are like, you know, all for diversity and inclusivity and uh, not offending people. But for Richard Dawkins, his views on God, when it comes to his attack on religion, on Christianity, on the West by extension, mind you, listen, this is a point I'll reiterate again, is that any attack on the Christian faith, culturally speaking, is an attack on Western culture. That is something that cannot be disputed. Anyone who questions the validity of the Christian faith invariably would at some point question the validity of Western culture and Western civilization, which is after all what? Western, Christian, European. Its pillars are Greek, Roman, German, Anglo-American, okay? Okay, these are the great centers of Western civilization. So when you attack Christianity, invariably you attack those key foundations, okay? Which has given rise to what the West is. It's funny because now with Richard Dawkins, again, I don't want to get too much into this. I'll get into the main critique now. It's that when he tries to expand his critique of religion, which basically corresponds to anything that pertains to the mystical, right? Which could be, you know, shamanist beliefs from, I don't know, from South America or some primitive beliefs in some God-forsaken part of the world, some traditional views, some kind of tribalistic totemic beliefs that you find in, in the South Sea Islands, in the Pacific, and so on. My point is, listener, if you attack religion, you got to attack them all. If you want to attack the belief in the things which are which cannot be reduced to mechanistic processes with cause and effect structures, if you want to appeal to different kinds of authority which are not scientific, 
like religious authority, like order which is based on tradition and history. But the problem is that that framework would apply to other cultures as well, other non-Western, non-European cultures. And you get into hot water, you know, the PC crowd who wants to make everything inclusive and diverse, right? And so that's very interesting. But, but here, my focus here in this particular episode is on Richard Dawkins' critique of God. Now, when it comes to God, again, this is something I've seen many times, and unfortunately, he hasn't really outgrown this at all, it seems to me, right? And frankly, this is a feature of all the New Atheists. Let me tell you, so the New Atheist critic of religion is not that sophisticated. In fact, these guys are now actually you know, kind of out of fashion. So, you know, they've sort of broken off. They're, they're splintered now, right? The New Atheists are not a group as they were. They're like different, isolated individuals for the most part. And that is understandable, but the point is that their ideas remain popular. People still refer to them, even though they're actually losing credence. Anyway, this idea of criticizing God by criticizing scripture, and here I will point to a quote from his interview, right? He's basically promoting a book with this woman, Jana Levin. Anyway, he's citing the argument against God by criticizing scripture. Okay, this is the argument, right? So, quote, take the Bible, for example. If we based our moral values on the Bible, we will be stoning adulterers to death. Okay, look, this is really below the belt, to be honest with you. I mean, this is so, I mean, frankly, lame. I mean, first of all, no serious Christian, as far as I'm concerned, would say that just because the Bible says something, that it's supposed to be right. It makes no sense, especially in the context of the Christian faith. First of all, Christianity is not a biblical religion. People may not realize this, but the Bible is not the be-all and end-all of the Christian faith. It may appear so, okay, because that is the case in other religions like Islam, where the Quran is the main work, or in Judaism, where the Torah, right, Tanakh, right, those holy books together comprise their, the revealed character of their faith. Christianity does not operate along those lines. Christianity, whilst the Bible is important, and this is a point I've already mentioned here on this podcast, is that the Bible in the Christian faith is a guidebook, not a rule book. Okay, it cannot tell us exactly how to live our lives. It can provide broad directions. It can provide signals. It can provide sort of nudges, and it can provide wisdom. Okay in helping us understand what is right or wrong, but it cannot tell us definitively, again, how we should act in every situation. Or it cannot tell us definitively how we should do the world. I mean, this is especially true when it comes to our understanding of the natural world. The Bible is not a science book, clearly. So, inherent limitations to what Scripture can say. And when it comes to the Old Testament, there are many problems. I mean, in Christianity, let me just sort of give you a brief outline of what the faith is from a scriptural perspective, just from the standpoint of the Bible. I'm just going to ignore the rest for now, just right, if we are sort of to go with the idea that the Bible is authoritative. See, the Bible, first of all, is divided into two books, the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? The Old Testament is called the Old Covenant, and the New Testament is called the New Covenant, right? So the old one is God's relationship with man through Israel, right? How he chooses Abraham and the, the holy people, and how God's will was manifesting through them, etc., right? So it was God's way of connecting with the people at a different time, in a different era. Now, that is the Old Covenant, okay? That no longer is operative, okay? Its effect is, is, I won't say nullified, but it's been repurposed, okay? It's been transformed into the New Covenant that is made real in Jesus Christ. Christ is the Covenant. So, the New Testament is important, more important than the Old Testament. Now, this is not to say, again, recall my earlier point when it comes to who Jesus Christ is. This is not to say that the Old Testament is disregarded or thrown away. In fact, the Old Testament actually has the groundwork for understanding who Jesus Christ is. Okay, think about it, right? The Old Testament itself contains revelation of Christ and Christ himself. If you look at it deeply, he's already present in the Old Testament. That's something for us to consider later. But my point is, listener, that purely in terms of rules and guidelines and teachings, 
the Old Testament is not an authority, right? No one in their right mind would point to Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and say, oh, wow, look here. You know, this is the way to govern a society. Clearly, that's not the case. This is stupid. I mean, Leviticus, the kind of crap that you hear is unbelievable. And look, it doesn't take a wise guy to discern that, you know, stoning people for adultery is wrong. Hell, didn't Jesus Christ say that he who without sin caused the first stone? Now, again, consider what I'm trying to say here, listener. Even within the biblical framework, we can immediately discern that the Old Testament is not as important when it comes to moral guidelines. Now, it has other features, other important functions to play when it comes to the nature of the faith. Undisputed. Okay, that goes without saying. The Old Testament, you cannot use that to, you know, to direct your life. It's silly. And people really should stop doing this. It's stupid. And I think people, especially people of the likes of Richard Dawkins, who are like these you know, smart people with you know, so many degrees, and you know, he's from England with a posh British accent. You know, people like him really need to know better. Like, and his acolytes, you know, I'm sure there are quite a few of them, you know, should stop using these, these kinds of lame arguments. The Old Testament is not there to tell us how to live our life. It's basically there to help us understand who God is. The example I can think of is, is the Sunday Eucharist, right? Where we have three readings, right? One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, one from the letters. And together, help us make us understand a certain message that God is trying to give us. Okay? It's about learning. It's about discerning, okay? It's not about being spoon-fed moral. It's not about, I think it was Christopher Hitchens who said, right? Don't take your commandments in tablet form, something along those lines. Basically, the commandments are not there to just tell us this or that. It's there to help us understand what life is, okay? To give one example, I mean, take the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I mean, I like the Catechism. It's a good book, right? You may not have to agree with it, but it's very educative. It's very, it's pedagogically serious. And each of the commandments that God gave us, right? They have been expanded and explicated in great detail. Okay, so, for example, the commandment on thou shalt not commit adultery, it's not just about adultery. It's about so many other things that correspond to human sexuality. And each of those things are engaged and discussed. There are many... It's deliberative, right? It's not something that's you know, arbitrarily thrown in and sort of, oh, by the way, you do this, you know, you're rewarded, or if you're not, you're punished. It's not like that, okay? So really, I mean, th this has to stop. Christianity is not a biblical religion. It's not, further still, it's not even a revealed religion in its entirety. That is that we don't use scripture to say, oh, look, the Bible said this, hence it's right. Oh, the Bible said that, hence it is wrong. No, that's not how it works. It's basically the understanding of scripture, but the understanding of human nature employment of our rational faculties. It's about developing a way of making informed decisions, which are theologically enriched, which are morally acceptable, which are in line with God's plan, okay? There are many layers to this, listener, and it's not good enough for people, especially theologically literate people like Richard Dawkins, and I don't care how many degrees he has or how qualified he is in evolution, because he's merely a layman when it comes to these kinds of subjects, when it comes to theology, and I would even say philosophy, the way he's speaking, to comment on this. So this, this is really stupid, and I think... It's a bit like Daniel Denner. These people are not learning. They regurgitated the same old thing again and again. Richard Dawkins is in, going back into Charles Darwin. Daniel Denner is referring back to Dawkins. So this is something very circular about these people. The point is this, listener. Richard Dawkins' critique of God is essentially a critique of Scripture, a critique of the Bible, and it doesn't hold. Not when it comes to Christianity. It may apply to Islam. It possibly applies to Judaism. I don't know. But when it comes to Christianity, which I argue so far is the most sophisticated belief system, that's the only thing I will say, by the way. Uh, listener, in terms of comparative religions, uh, my comments on, on religions, other religions are not Christian, but it's very silly. And it's not just a question about, oh, the Bible says this, or some holy text said this, or even the catechism of the Catholic Church says this, but it's about learning and applying and discerning in the process. So really, the complexity of the faith in its practical dimension, in its intellectual dimension, in the meditative, in the transcendental spheres, these things have to be considered. And, and you can't come here with this kinds of, frankly, amateurish kind of argumentation, or the Bible condemns adultery, right? Fornicators need to be burnt to death. Isn't that amazing? 
And that's a good reason to reject the Bible. In fact, and this argument applies also to the so-called good passages. Jesus Christ says, help the poor, sell your possessions. Mind you, those things are actually as complicated, probably more problematic because people tend to take those things at face value. But the point is, listener, these things cannot be taken seriously. And people like Richard Dawkins, despite their reputation, when they come up with these kinds of arguments, should be dismissed out of hand. This is not serious. That's one. The next problem. Start with another quote here. So this one is from his book, The Magic of Reality. Here it is. So it's a short passage. It's not just the contents of this particular passage, but just try to understand the mentality of the writer, okay? So here it is. Quote, this is Darwin's great idea, and it's called evolution by natural selection. It is one of the most important ideas ever to occur to a human mind. It explains everything we know about life on Earth. End quote. Right. So, now, just freeze that for a moment, okay? It's the most important ideas ever to occur to a human mind. It's very important. And, of course, it explains everything that we know about life on Earth. Now, first of all, hyperbole aside, can the listener discern what's going on here? What's happening here with Mr. Dawkins? What's happening with all these atheists, really? What we have here, listener, is a fascination with a what is essentially a secular dogma. That is evolution, but specifically Darwinian evolution. As I mentioned before, there are many kinds of evolutions, or rather many ways of understanding the concept of evolution. The origins of evolution go back much further than Charles Darwin. The intellectual antecedents goes back to different intellectual traditions. In fact, it could even be traced back to the ancient Greeks, to the Stoics, to their own views of teleology. The idea is the non-teleological character of evolution. That's what we're getting at here, at one level. And secondly, the notion that somehow mechanistic processes like natural selection can somehow generate complex life forms, complex organisms. That's the idea here. So the idea of evolution is not new. It's been around for a while. What we have here is the overt or the singular emphasis on the naturalistic view of evolution. So going back to Charles Darwin, who was a naturalist, and this has now been taken up and being propounded by people like Richard Dawkins. But listen, to my, what I want you to focus here is this. It's not about the evolution per se, but it is the underlying sentiment. Okay, what is happening with Richard Dawkins? This guy does not believe in God. He doesn't think God exists. He doesn't think God is real, etc., etc. Of course, he's not a Christian, right? You know, being a Christian is not just about believing in God, by the way, right? There's more to it than that, and this is something I will get into in the future. I say that quite a bit, but believe me, I will, and I do, as, as you guys know. When it comes to the idea that Richard Dawkins believes in evolution, right? And in this case, in his own words, he thinks it's one of the best ideas the human mind has ever conceived, and it apparently explains everything we know about life or not. I mean, Boy, really, I mean, this is the real problem, okay? First of all, what we know about life is basically defined by what we don't know. At this point, cannot be reiterated, listener. Charles Darwin does not tell us anything about the origin of life. He does not tell us how the first single cell formed. He does not tell us how complex DNA molecules emerge and how they form those structures like what Francis Crick discovered, the information-bearing genetic code. Further still, this is something I'll get into in the next part when I engage evolution, but I'll do it differently is that the evolutionary question is still, I mean, quite problematic, is it not? I mean, just look at the way these guys are talking. In fact, books like The Magic of Reality, books like Outgrowing God, this is not really about science, okay? It's not about telling people about the complex mechanisms and processes that underlie the scientific method, but rather it is about giving praise to evolution. It's about worshipping the contributions of Charles Darwin. It's about paying homage to, oh, Charles Darwin, evolution. It's told us how life is. No, it hasn't. It doesn't tell us how life began. It does not tell us how life became more complex. It does not tell us why, for example, some species don't seem to evolve at all. Okay, these are called living fossils, which is, you know, like jellyfish, right? Or certain kinds of sea creatures like crabs and so on. These things have been around for ages. They don't seem to evolve. Certain reptiles, for example, 
it's almost like they're just stagnant. They're not evolving, okay? Monkeys and apes and gorillas and all these other, you know, so-called primate cousins. I hate that, really. These creatures, right, supposedly are cousins, right? These are, you know, hideously primitive. They're not even, they're not human, right? They're nothing like us. Other than some, you know, certain apish similarities, but those are just general morphology. But, you know, that, you can say that about other creatures as well. The fact that we are, you know, symmetrical, right? The fact that, you know, we have two hands, two legs, you know, that happens, that applies to a lot of creatures. My point is, listener, this idea of evolution has been spiritualized. It has been given a certain kind of significance, a certain kind of cultural significance, one that it does not deserve, one that is weakening in its significance. Whatever credit that evolution has, particularly the Darwinian evolution, as I mentioned in the last episode, there are serious problems with the mechanistic framework. Natural selection working on mutated stochastic framework is seriously inadequate when it comes to explaining the complexity of life with respect to information. Nonetheless, these people keep hammering down, oh, evolution, evolution. It's telling us how life became more complicated, right? That's what they're trying to tell us, not, not the emergence of life as a whole, to say nothing of the emergence of complex body plans. The information gap, right, in terms of the need for novel information is not addressed. And in fact, and this is something, again, I mentioned before, the Intelligent Design Committee have made this very clear. I think their work is quite solid on this, is that random processes, in, in, in a sense, only destroy information. And again, I don't want to push this for the any more listener, but all I can say is that there are new ideas afoot. The third way is something I would recommend the listener to consider. These guys are not Christian as far as I'm concerned. They're not affiliated with the intelligent design movement, but they're very critical of Darwinian evolution. But anyway, what I'm getting at with people like Richard Dawkins and looking at his works and looking at his, his manner of speaking, manner of engaging these subjects, he is going after the low-hanging fruit. People who are like fundamentalist Christians, Bible thumpers, right, biblical literalists, most Christians, I would say, most sophisticated people who are Christian are not going to put up with this kind of garbage themselves, okay? And these are the kinds of people Richard Dawkins is attacking, right? There's nothing special about this. And this is not good enough. And But it really tells us now, maybe just because Dawkins is now, you know, he's now 80, right? Maybe he's not really thinking as sharply, I don't mean that in a critical way, but he just seems to be more laid back. Going, going back to that interview with Jana Levin, right? He reads fan me, which is basically hate mail, people who don't like him. But I have the impression these people are actually his own atheist acolytes who are basically fabricating these ones and sending them as such. I mean, that's my conjecture anyway. My point is, listener, the absence of God, okay, which is the focus of this episode in the life of Richard Dawkins, has led him to divinize science. Science itself has become some kind of a mystical force. He's worshipping the scientific enterprise, the magic of reality. This is how the fascination with the material world, which, by the way, I share the fascination too, right? This is something I'll argue in the course of this podcast, right? which is the need for affirming reality, affirming the material world, affirming the world that we have, right? The beautiful creation, okay? Which we can make better, which we have to use. Just the other day, speaking of the magic of reality, right? I just watched Dune. And I was thinking, you know, Dune by Frank Herbert's book, which has been remade by Dennis. Uh, he's a French-Canadian, uh, right? Canadian uh, producer. And it's a beautiful film. I loved it. I mean, I must say, one of the best films I've seen in a while. I've not seen many movies. watched it in theaters a couple of times. I just had to do it. I mean, as a fan of the book, as a fan of science fiction, for me, watching Dune was, was spiritual. And there are a number of things that, that came about whilst watching it. And for me, that reinforces my spirituality, if I had one. It makes me value my religious or Christian heritage. And thinking of people like Richard Dawkins, what I'm, getting, what I'm seeing, they don't have a religion. They don't have God. They don't have the access to the transcendental. They have to worship science. They have to worship, oh, the beauty of wonder of reality. But that is a lame attempt. It is an attempt to inject the spiritual into something that, that does not have spirituality in it, okay? Or rather, it is a way of trying to make something artificially spiritual, okay? So let me give you another quote from that interview. So this one, basically, okay, this is the one he says, 
And this is in reference to his book, The Selfish Gene, which he published quite a while back, I think in 1976. And he says, one of the things I perhaps should have done is call the book, The Selfish Gene, The Immortal Gene, which actually sounds a bit more poetic, a bit more spiritual than The Selfish Gene. So now that's interesting, isn't it? Why does he say that? Okay, leaving aside the fact that The Selfish Gene is a bestseller, is a good book, it was except it was lauded by critics, right? It's essentially re adding weight to the Darwinian argument. But actually, that view has many problems. This notion that genes themselves have some kind of replication value. And so it's basically conferring value to the part rather than to the whole. And this is actually a major issue that is debated. In fact, the debate actually precedes Richard Dawkins, not surprisingly. In fact, I'm looking at some of the works of the German idealists just before I started this episode. I think Goethe is one person who looked into this as well. This apparent confusion between or conflict between the mechanism or the organism in part versus in whole, right? So the, the gene aspect just looks at a certain segment of the organism and sees, does it, is, in and of itself, is it sufficient, right? Or does the whole, is the whole is what gives the specific part meaning and significance. So in the case of Dawkins, who's obviously a materialist, you know, doesn't value the whole, he seems to you know, value the gene, right? Which is essentially something that's transmitted via reproduction. My point is that these debates on evolution are very complicated. They go back further, right? And there's much more work that needs to be done as opposed to what we have with these people saying, oh, evolution, everything is figured out. Everything is non-teleological. Everything is atheistic, which is simply not true. Now, with this particular quote, quotation on him wishing that he had renamed his book the immortal gene, right? So it'll be more poetic. It's more spiritual. What are we getting at here? What is happening to Mr. Dawkins? Why is he using words like spiritual? Even in a critical sense, right, going back to the magic of reality, where he criticizes the fantastical, right, the sort of the things which happen unbelievably. You know, magic is like the snap of a figure, something happens. Or then something happens, you know, sort of a slow burn, over time, progressive, step by step. Even then, he sort of has to go back to the spiritual question. He sort of has to make science magical. He has to make the seemingly boring, dull, hard work, which is what science is, which is what it entails, anything that involves research and data, in relation to the material world, corresponds to science, presuming there are certain you know, fixed uh, parameters in terms of outcomes, observation, hypothesis, and you know, to compare and contrast expectations, if there are theories that can be proven or disproven, the scientific method, right? But it's so boring and dull. Now, this man tries to inject some kind of meaning into it. But the problem is this, listener. Let's circle this argument backwards. If you reject God, everything else becomes kind of meaningless, doesn't it not? After all, it means that life has no meaning. It has no purpose. It has no endpoint. And that is the underlying philosophy of the Darwinian worldview. If natural selection is indifferent, it is non-teleological. It has no foresight, which is a major problem, actually. And this is something that has been looked into by people who propound intelligent design, but others as well. There are philosophical questions as well. Is that why all of this? Let me just throw one example here. Why does natural selection have to make us so complicated? Why should there be people with blue eyes? Why should there be people with blonde hair? Why? Think about it, listener. We can be much more simpler and survivable. We don't have to be the complex organisms that we are. But there is a reason why we are like this. There's a reason why we have become the complex, powerful, capable, knowledgeable organisms that we are. And the Christian worldview provides an answer because we are God's creation. We are part of God's plan. Now, Dawkins rejects it, okay? And here's another quotation which would probably tell you a little bit about what's going on through Mr. Dawkins' mind on the question of humanity and underlying it on the question of spirituality vis-a-vis -vis ultimately God. And this one, again, is taken from the same interview. Here it is. Quote, I can assert that until humans came on the scene, there was no foresight. There was no looking ahead to welfare. But humans are the one exception, a wonderful exception. Okay, so a wonderful exception. 
Think about this, listener. What is the man actually saying here? When he says human beings are an exception, what does it mean? It means that human beings are special. We are special. What is the basis of the Christian faith? What is it? What is Christianity ultimately about? Again, I'm not here to defend and promote Christianity, but on the gist of it, because that's the only religion I can work with. I can't talk about Islam or Judaism or Hinduism or any other belief system. What is the basis of the Christian faith? It is that God loves us. What does that even mean in a practical sense? It means God created us, one, but two, he created us for a... Okay, when God created the world, he made Adam his lieutenant. He's the master of creation. Why? Because Adam, in many ways, he's the son of God. Right? If you want to believe it, because Adam, you know, the sand, you know, the life force of God is absorbed and made manifest in Adam, the first man. Jesus Christ is the new Adam. He's the beginning of a new creation. This is Christian metaphysics list. I know this will sound crazy for people, but the point is we are special. Why? Because God created us, or rather because God intended us to be special, okay? He had a plan. Let's look at it from an evolutionary perspective, right? If God cares about us, if God wants us to be the people that we're meant to be, that means he intended all of this to happen. It was not a coincidence. It was not a chance-based event. Even if life came about through simple forms and it evolved into more complex organisms, like right? that's sort of the view of evolution. That sits pretty well within the Christian framework, by the way. It doesn't have to be a case of you know, something magically appearing out of nothing. It can happen progressively. In fact, a more sophisticated reading of scripture actually lends a hand to an evolutionary view of life. The thing I mentioned before, I'm very sympathetic to an evolutionary view of Christianity, not only the Old Testament, but also the New Testament, and of course, Christianity even today, in terms of what it has and what it, what it must become. But it's interesting that Richard Dawkins speaks about foresight and speaks about human beings being special. It speaks about our ability to work for others' well-being. Now, these are very humanistic points, humanistic ideas about human well-being, about human betterment. Question is, where does it come from? Where? The critical point about human beings is this. We, unlike other creatures, have the power to shape this world. We want to shape this world. We want to shape our planet, our world around us, and hopefully if we become a great civilization, I think this is something we have. I think the Kardashev cycles, I think, where civilizations progress from type 1 to type 2 to type 3 to type 4. I think we're not even a type 1 civilization. That's a type 1. It's like a planetary civilization, I think, or is it a solar one? I think it's a planetary civilization, okay? We gain complete mastery over our planet. We're not even close to really, probably another 100 years. My point, listener, is that that is very much akin to the thinking of a god. God who wants to control, manage, and direct things. And we, like God, manifest those qualities. We have foresight. We have plans. We want to assert our will on this world. We want to be the masters of creation. Why? Because God intended it. That is the commandment that God gave to Adam. And God gave him the power, the wisdom, the knowledge to do it on his behalf. Okay? So here we have Richard Dawkins speak about human beings exceptional, human beings being special, right? Talking about spirituality. What is happening? It seems that things are sort of circling back to Richard Dawkins. As much as he wants to reject the God, the, the religion, the spirituality, he cannot escape it. That is not a surprise. Because after all, as we know, listeners, spirituality, God is a reality that goes beyond religion. Religion is just a way to help us understand God. And by the way, this is another thing which Richard Dawkins regurgitates as well. It's a terrible argument, and I think atheists, especially those who follow Richard Dawkins, need to stop using this. Just because there are many religions in this world doesn't mean that they are wrong. Okay, for example, Christianity accepts the validity of Islam and Judaism. Both religions are valid for the most part. Okay, As a Christian, you're not going to be able to say that Muslims are damned or that Jews are damned. That's ridiculous. Of course, Jesus Christ did say some weird things. People who reject me, you know, I reject them. But those are much more complicated subjects that require a greater degree of theological sophistication to understand them. And listen, this is the real crux of this argument when it comes to the New Atheists, and frankly to all these people, is that the lack of theological sophistication, right? All of these people, the New Atheists, and frankly a lot of the Christian apologists, right, on the evangelical side, all of them lack theological sophistication. And that is a problem. 
And as a humanist, or someone who, who affirms the transcendental and the immanent, who affirms God as part from nature, but also as a part of it, especially within the human psyche, this is an opportunity. Because after all, the new humanist is not an atheist. He's someone who affirms the goodness of life, but also the greatness of God. But what does the idea of God mean is a bigger, more complex question. All right, folks, this is the New Humanist Podcast. I'm Damien. This is episode 48, the sixth of part seven, and see you guys next time.